Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. That is where we're going to pick up after a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for caring for us, keeping us safe, getting us back here again this evening. We pray that you will look in on those who care about us, those that we care about. We pray that you will keep them safe in their travels While they're away from us, bring them back safely. And we thank you for the fact that you've given us food and clothes and a right mind today. And that you've given us the wherewithal to stop all the stuff of life and just come and sit and feast on your word for a night. So thank you for doing that. Let your word wash over us. Let it change our minds, change our hearts, keep us committed to these things that you have told us. We pray all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, Solomon is going to start talking from the perspective of being the king, because after all, being David's son, he is the king of Israel. This is the first place that we're going to see him really address that he is king. And really what he's going to talk about here is that there is a certain decorum when you go before the king. And he's going to tell you the reasons why that decorum exists. And you're going to recognize some of the language because if a king is a truly powerful king, then he can do what he wants and nobody can say, what are you doing? And that is the same language, of course, that Nebuchadnezzar utilizes when he comes to realize that God is sovereign and can do whatever he wants. Nebuchadnezzar says he's the God who no one can say, what are you doing? So that concept that no one can question you apparently was quite prevalent among kings there in the Middle East who realized that they had reached the pinnacle of power over other people. And then you apply it to God and you really get the sense of king of kings, of lord of lords. And he being the king above all kings can do whatever he wants and nobody can say, what are you doing? So let's talk for just a moment about what it is to be the king in Israel. When we think of king, we think of the person who makes the rules But in the case of Solomon, the rules are pretty much made because he is only the third king of Israel, but Israel has already been given the law. They've already been given the 613 ordinances. They've already been given the standard that Moses laid out. So their job primarily is to keep the word of God advanced, forward-moving, being protected, being respected within the community of Israel. And then their other job is to judge. So people would come before them with all kinds of different uh, disagreements that they're having between themselves, and they would say, you're the king, you're the ultimate court, since they didn't have a supreme court. You'd go to the king and say, what about this? When nobody else could figure it out, it would finally get to the king, and he would have that job of judging. You might remember the famous story about Solomon. One of the evidences of his wisdom was that there were the two women who were both fighting over one baby. Both women said, it's my baby, because one of them had rolled over in the night and suffocated her baby. So there's two women fighting about whose baby it is. They get in front of the king, and he says... Bring me a sword and we'll just cut the baby in half and then both of you women can half half the baby. And one of the two women says, no, don't do that. Let her have it. And Solomon says, give the baby to the woman who said that. She's clearly the mother. And so that's a demonstration of the wisdom that Solomon showed in how he judged 
the people of God. But as far as rulemaking, the rules already exist. The rules are already laid down. As king, there's a few things that he can add, just societally, things that he can decide on. He can make some decisions, but in the end, he's doing the same thing that the judges of Israel did, which is determine right and wrong based on the law of God within the community of Israel. That's their primary job. So that's the perspective that Solomon is writing from in Ecclesiastes 8. And again, he's still going to talk about wisdom and the importance of wisdom, but he's also going to bring up little stories, little asides that he knows because he's king. So you kind of have to see it from that perspective in order to understand the things that he muses on through this. And you have to keep that perspective of he is king, therefore there is a decorum to be had when you go before him. Okay, so that's all introduction. Let's dig in. Chapter 8, verse 1 is really a continuation of chapter 7. You know that these numbers that are stuck in were stuck in by later translators. Solomon did not, at this point in his thinking, say, and number 8, you know, 8-1, except he would have said it in Hebrew. It's a continuation of what he's already said. So let's start at chapter 7, verse 27, which says, Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am seeking, but I have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Now, with that same thought in mind, chapter 8, verse 1 says, Who is like the wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a matter? Okay, well, that's primarily what he's doing as king. He is interpreting matters. People are bringing their matters to him. People bring their discussions, their arguments their disagreements to him, and he's the one who has to suss out and interpret what is happening and what is just under these conditions. Who is a wise man? He has just told us, not one man out of a thousand. It's really difficult to find anybody who has wisdom. But I, as the king, have been given wisdom from God so that I can figure out these various matters that people bring to me. A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to shine or to beam. In other words, his stern face means he's a serious man. He's a wise man. And because he's wise, he thinks. And because he thinks and because he's serious, it's the fact that he's also a wise man that makes his face approachable, for lack of a better word. It's a friendly face based on not his foolishness, not on his craziness and party-down attitude. It's the fact that when you come before him, he's a wise man. And that's what gives his stern face light. It beams. So I say, verse 2, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Now, there are several different interpretations of what that may mean. I think the most agreeable is when he became king, the oath that he took before God was to serve as the God of Israel according to the law of God. There is an agreement made between God and the king that God is the ultimate king and God's law is going to rule. So then whatever the king says to do is ultimately what God had said to do. That being the case, you should keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. In other words, if you've got a wise king, and when he tells you to do something, that's directly from God as well. It's in accordance with the law, the rules, the ordinances of God. Well, then don't depart from that. Don't up and leave that and say, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. What's the king? No, crazy old king. (laughs) 
He, if he is speaking because of the oath of God, is commanding within the boundaries of what God has already said. And therefore, don't be quick to abandon him. Don't be in a hurry to leave him. And naturally, when people leave the king, what do they do? They go join up with some evil matter. So he says, don't go join in an evil matter. For he will do whatever he pleases. The king can do whatever he pleases. You put all those phrases together, I think it's a bit of a warning. Which is, I'm king, I speak in accordance with what the law of God says, so therefore do what I say, but if you abandon me and go join some evil matter that works against me, don't forget I am king and I can do whatever I want and that's going to go bad for you. That seems to be the perspective, and he's going to say something very similar to that in a minute. Since the word of the king is authoritative, then who will say to him, what are you doing? So there's the basic principle. You can only be unquestioned if you are the absolute authority. If you're the one the only one who knows the answer to the questions that people ask or to the situation that you're looking at or how to judge a thing. If you are the absolute authority, then nobody can say to you, why do you do things the way you do them? Because he's king, he can do whatever he wants, and nobody can say to him, what are you doing? Extend that out to God, which Nebuchadnezzar does, that even Paul does, and we're going to get into it later in the book of Romans, When he says, you're going to say to me, why does God yet find fault? Because who resists God's will? And his answer is, who are you to reply against God? You're just a man. You're just a creature. You don't have the ability to reply against God because he is the ultimate authority. And because he has all the authority, you don't get to question him. Same idea here. If he's the king... And he's a king over other kings, and he's an absolute king, then you shouldn't leave him, shouldn't abandon him, shouldn't join an evil matter against him. You should stay on his side because he can do whatever he wants, and the word of the king is authoritative. Therefore, you can't say to him, why? Why are you doing this? The answer is, because I'm king, which, by the way, is a great position to be in. I would love to be in the position of saying, why? Well, because I'm king. And it's good to be king. (laughs) Since the word of a king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble. Exactly. That's why he said... Keep the command of the king. Because if you do keep the command of the king, then you're not going to get in trouble. Because you're doing the thing that the king commands, which is in league with the oath that he took to God, which then is in league with the law of God as he rules over Israel. So do what the king says. You're not going to have any trouble. But for a wise heart knows the proper time and the proper procedure, I think he's saying... If you're wise, if you're understanding, then you're going to see the wisdom in what I tell you to do. You're going to see that I'm just speaking in accordance to the rules, the law of God. And therefore, you're going to keep the royal command. You're going to experience no trouble because you have a wise heart that knows the proper time and the procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight When a man's trouble is heavy upon him. That's an odd phrase. But if you look at it within the context of him speaking from his position of king, he's saying there's a proper decorum. There's a proper way to do things. I'm the king. Follow my commands. And the reason you should follow my commands is that there is a proper time and procedure for everything that I'm pleased with. Everything that delights me. There's a proper reason for me doing it. And if you don't follow that command, 
then a man's trouble is going to lay heavy on him. So there's really two reasons to do what the king says to do. The first one is you're going to experience no trouble if you do it. And because I'm king and can do whatever I want, I'm going to do whatever I'm delighted to do. And if you don't follow my command, then it's going to be trouble for you, and that's going to be heavy upon you. And then verse 7, which I have to tell you I, I just love. If no man knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? That just makes sense. There's nobody who can tell you what's going to happen so that no one can tell you when it's going to happen. I think this is still in the context of him saying there's a proper time and a proper procedure for every delight, every idea, every good idea that the king has. If he's following after the ordinances and the commands of God, then there's a proper time and a proper procedure to everything that the king does. It might also, if we extend it out theologically, it might also mean that God does whatever God wants to do. And since nobody's able to tell you what's going to happen, then it's impossible for them to tell you when it's going to happen. I think we could even extend that out to some of the prophecy preachers today, especially the date-setting prophecy preachers. Since you don't know what's really going to happen, you can't really tell us when it's going to happen. So you've got to be careful about date setting. Verse 8. No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of his death. And there is no discharge in the time of war and evil will not deliver those who practice it. Now let's go back for just a moment and put those two verses together. Just start with Remember what I told you last week or the week before. This whole section of the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's way of telling us what men don't know and what men can't know. That's really what he's concentrating on is all the stuff that men just cannot know. We cannot know what's going to happen. We cannot know when it's going to happen. And if we could know those things, we would have some kind of actual authority the king has some authority. God has ultimate authority. But you and I, we don't really have any authority. If we had any authority, we could go out and restrain the wind with a counterwind. We could rev up our own wind that was so strong it would stop the wind of God. Well, we can't do that. We can't restrain the wind with the wind. We don't have any wind of our own to go stop the wind with. Why? Because we have no authority. We have no power. We can't know things. We don't even have authority over the day of our death. He's going to bring that up again, and he's going to use it as a demonstration of what we just don't know. We really don't know stuff, and we have no authority over the day of our death. And there is no discharge in the time of war. In other words, being the king, he knows what the army is about, and if it's in the middle of a war and you're needed to participate in the war for the king, you can't come to the king and say, I prefer to go home now. You know, I've got stuff to do. I'm thinking shopping. I'd like to go now, thank you. You're not going to get discharged during the time of war. So you have no authority, is his point. His whole point is you have no authority. You don't even have the authority to know when your death is. You have no authority to control the weather or the wind. And you don't even have the authority, if you're in the army, to say, I don't want to go to war. You have to do what you have to do. And evil will not deliver those who practice it. In other words, if you're a fool and you go chase after evil things, it's going to control you. And it's not going to deliver you. So again, you're under something's control. You're always being controlled by something, and you have no authority. And all this, says Solomon in verse 9, all this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. In other words, remember earlier when he was speaking about how men oppress other men. He's thinking about that same idea and saying, I have seen men exercise their authority over other men 
to the hurt of those men, and yet those men who are exercising that painful authority don't really have any ultimate authority. They don't have any control over anything, and yet they will oppress other people. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. So then, I have seen the wicked buried. Basically what that means, and I don't know if you remember everything I said last week. Do you remember everything I said last week? How many of you remember everything? Anyway, (laughs) last week we talked about the fact that Solomon said, I've seen good men suffer. I've seen evil men have long life and succeed and do fine. Same ideas being said here. I have seen the wicked buried. They should be cut off. They should be at the bottom of the ocean and fish food somewhere. They should be in a fire or underneath a falling pillar. They're evil. But no, I've seen them live long lives all the way out to where they die of natural causes and their family buries them. And yet they're wicked. So then I have seen the wicked buried. Those who used to go in and out from the holy place, even though they were wicked, they'd put on their show of being righteous, being holy. They'd go in and out of the temple and people would say, oh, look at them. And yet once they're dead, once they're buried, they are soon forgotten in the city where they did that. During their life, they showed off. They were wicked. In their life, they'd go in and out of the temple, in and out of the holy place. In their life, people would kind of ooh and ah at them. But then they live their life and they're buried. And the fact is, they're forgotten in the very city where they were busy showing off. And so he says this, too, is a form of futility. I think we can extend that out to every body who spends time showing off in this lifetime. Everybody who does, hey, me too, that happens a lot to me on social media. I'll write something or post something. As often as not, the responses are little more than people yelling, me too, I know something. Look, I have something to say. Look, watch, look at me, look at me. It's like they're hijacking my posts, you know, me too. Solomon says, yes, well, there were people in his day who were like that, who went to the temple, who showed off day and night. But once they're dead, people in that very city don't even remember them because they're busy looking at someone else, thinking about someone else, thinking about themselves. Look at me, too. In other words, it's futile to go through all that showing off. It's futile to go through all that look at me because eventually you're dead and no one remembers you did that. So that, too, is futile. Verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, and therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Let's put verses 10 and 11 together, and you're going to understand what he, as king, is saying. He's saying, I've seen the wicked live long, successful lives, show off wildly, Then they're buried, and the reason they had that long life is because the sentence, the judgment against an evil deed, isn't executed quickly. Should we talk about our own court system these days? Modern jurisprudence? Well, the result of not doing something about it quickly is that, therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Because they see that the person who's doing the evil, nothing bad happens to him. There's no sentence against him. There's no judgment against him. So then I have seen the wicked buried. Those who used to go in and out from the holy place. And they are soon forgotten in the city where they did this. This too is futility. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly. And therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. In other words, judgment's coming. 
even if you look in this lifetime, as Solomon did, and say, sometimes I see righteous people oppressed. I see righteous people dying early. I see sinners, evil people who have successful lives, long lives, and it just seems intrinsically unfair to me that the good suffer and the evil seem to get away with it. And the fact that they get away with it inspires other people to do evil. And he says, but nevertheless, even though that sinner sins a hundred times publicly, and even though he lengthens his life so that he's buried by his children, and he looks like he was wildly successful in life, I still know that it's going to go well, ultimately, eternally. It goes well for those who fear God and who fear him who worship him openly, but it will not be well for the evil man and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. So Solomon's answer at this point to the wickedness that goes on in the world, to the fact that there's all this futility to human life, his answer is, yeah, but God knows. Yeah, but God will make it okay. And remember again, what is the main thing that the king does? This is why I emphasized this at the beginning. Ultimately, what the king does primarily is judge. And he knows that God is the ultimate judge. God is the ultimate authority. And if people can't say to the king, what are you doing? They can't say to God, what are you doing? And if the king gets to do whatever he wants then God really gets to do whatever he wants. And if the king's job is to judge, God's job is to judge. And when God judges, then he's going to judge according to those who really did worship and fear God and live accordingly. And those who did not fear God, he's going to judge severely. It's not going to go well for them. So even though you can look at this life and this world and everything under the sun and think this isn't fair, There's a whole lot of time and eternity left to balance those scales. And God being the righteous and ultimately just judge, he'll make it right. As we read from Abraham, the judge of all the earth will do right. So that's the perspective that Solomon has taken here in these first 13 verses. Does that all make sense? Yes. Yes. Okay. Verse 14, there is a futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. In other words, there are people who are right, they're righteous people, and yet they're judged in this world according to the judgment that should be poured out on the wicked. I've been studying this this week. And I saw an article just the other day about a man that was released from jail, from prison, for a crime that he didn't commit. And he'd been in prison for, what, 20-something years. And uh, they gave him and his family some large amount of money to make it okay. You know, sorry we locked you up all that time, but here, we'll give you some money. And I thought, well, there's a perfect example of what Solomon's talking about. It happened in this world that a righteous man ended up according to the deeds of the wicked. And he must have known that entire time that he was innocent of the crime he was going to prison for, and yet he was imprisoned for 20 years for the crime he didn't commit. We would all look at that and say, how does that happen that a righteous man is judged according to the way a wicked man should be judged? And then on the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens According to the deeds of the righteous, there are wicked people doing fine in this world, the way you would think the righteous people should do. I say, this too is futility. You look at it and you say, this is so unfair, this is so unjust, this just isn't right. Okay, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to fix it? How do you make it so it never happens again? It's what happens in this world. And so Solomon says, it's all just a futility if there is not ultimate judgment, if there isn't eternal righteousness, if there isn't ultimately a reward 
for the just person who is treated unjustly. Otherwise, it's all just earthly futility. Verse 15, so I commended pleasure, knowing that everything under the sun is just futile, knowing that vanity of vanities is just all vanity, and most things in the world just don't make sense. Okay, I underplayed that. Everything in this world just doesn't make sense. (laughs) Nothing really makes sense, and ultimately it's all forgotten. It all just blows away with the wind. So here's the best you can do. I commend pleasure. In other words, not sensual pleasure, but I commend that you enjoy what you do have. It's the same thing that he has said before in this book. For there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be happy, to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. So if you can't fix things, if you can't make everything right, if you can't deal with the futilities of this world and the vanities of this world, just be thankful for what God has actually given you. And when you eat, be grateful and be happy. When you drink, be happy that God has given you something to drink. And be merry. Have a good countenance about you. Don't walk around being angry. Don't walk around being grumpy. Go ahead and enjoy the life that God has given you, even if you can't figure out all the nuances of the unfairness of life here on earth. I commend pleasure. For there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his work, in his toils, throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the work or the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God. In other words, what he's saying, when I tried to figure it all out, when I tried in my heart to really comprehend wisely what goes on on this earth, the work, the task of what goes on in this earth, even if someone was so studied in this that they never slept day or night, if they had more hours than everybody else because they never ever slept and all they did was commit themselves to understanding the purpose, the task, the work of what goes on on the planet. And even if I saw every work of God that takes place on the planet so that I could figure it all out, put it all together, make one big compendium out of all of it, even if I did that, I conclude that a man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Men just can't know it. We're limited. We're limited in so many ways. And Solomon just keeps driving that point. Look, you're limited in what you're capable of understanding and knowing, and that will make you crazy if you set your mind to trying to understand all this stuff that's just not understandable. Therefore, accept that God is sovereign, that God knows what he's doing, and while God is doing it, he has given you certain things, for certain clothes, certain food, certain people to be with. If that's the case, then just be happy for what you've got, enjoy your life for what it is, and don't make yourself crazy over the stuff you just can't comprehend. And there's a lot of stuff in this life that I don't comprehend. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work that has been done under the sun. Even though a man should seek it laboriously, if he labors to understand it, he will not discover it. And though a wise man should say, I know, he still doesn't know. He still can't discover it. Here, I'll make it practical for you. Have you ever met anybody who truly, genuinely had life all figured out? Anyone? Anyone? Suggestions? <laughs> if That man, if he exists, should have a call-in show so the rest of us can call him and say, what's the deal? What is happening? Nobody really understands because God's ways 
as we certainly see in Romans, God's ways are inscrutable. In other words, beyond finding out. And God does it that way on purpose, says Solomon, so that men will fear him. God has kept people on purpose, understanding only the segments of their life that actually matter in this lifetime to get them to the eternity that he has planned for them. And he hasn't told anybody all of it. If he ever told you all of it, you couldn't contain it. You'd have to duct tape your head closed. There's no way that you could comprehend the eternality of God. If he told you the names of all the stars, you couldn't remember them. There's no way that he can tell creatures what his ultimate plan is and what he's doing in time and eternity. So we have to just trust that he knows what he's doing. And even if we labor to figure it out, no one's going to figure it out. By the way, that's kind of where faith comes in. That's kind of where we understand that God hasn't told us everything. And that the secret things belong to the Lord. And that he has revealed some stuff to us. He's given us these books in the Bible to deal with. But along the way, he has also said, now look, I've told you a bunch of stuff, but I haven't told you everything. I haven't told you what the thunder spoke. I use that example all the time. Because I find it fascinating that John would hear the thunder speak and then would start writing down what the thunder said. And an angel said, no, don't write that down. And all that does to me is make me go, well, I want, now I don't care about the other books. I want to know what the thunder said. Because <laughs> there's just a whole bunch of stuff we don't know. So then be satisfied with what you do know. But there will be a day when we will say, oh, that's what it was. <laughs> I hope so. And we're not going to have, since you said that, We're not going to have this sinful, depraved mind that we have. We're not going to have that constant distraction of our own lust running through our brain constantly. We're going to be able to actually concentrate and listen to the things of God and worship and enjoy the things of God without that constant distraction. Is anybody in this room able to pray without getting distracted? Yeah, (laughs) exactly, precisely. Yeah, we all get so easily distracted by every little thing. It'll be nice when our human mind isn't in the way. So we're going to read a little bit of of chapter 9 up to the point where Solomon says the same basic thing. So let's go to chapter 9, verse 7. Go then and eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart for God has already approved your works. In other words, the the reason that you have these events, these works, these tasks in your life, the reason you have this food, these drinks in your life is because God has already said, yes, you should have these. God has already approved them. He's already put them in front of you because he's sovereign, because he's in charge, because he loves you. He has given you these things. So for that reason, be happy. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Now, by the way, he's not saying get drunk until you have a cheerful heart. In the Middle East, it was very hard to find good, pure water. And so oftentimes they would mingle some wine with their water in order to make sure that the water would remain healthy that they were drinking. And so when he says, as we see so often in the Bible, drink some wine, it was a very, very common Middle Eastern drink, but it wasn't high alcohol content. Solomon's not saying get drunk on a regular basis so that you have a cheerful heart. He's saying, be thankful for it, be grateful, eat your bread with happiness, drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Now, I have to say, last night, I don't have to say, but I'm going to say, because I have the microphone and I can say whatever I want. Um, It's good to be king. It's it's good to be king. So, oh dear. (laughs) Last night, as I was, again, reading through this and deciding that we were going to read all the way down to this part tonight. I went in and I read it to my wife because it says, let your clothes be white all the time. In other words, be clean, take care of yourself, 
Let not oil be lacking on your head because they couldn't shower very often. There weren't baths and soap and stuff. So they would use oils and fragrances in order to make themselves smell attractive. So make sure that your clothes are clean. Make sure that oil is not lacking on your head. And enjoy life with the woman who you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. Look at that. God even says, and enjoy the person that you love. Enjoy your food. Enjoy your drink. Take care of yourself. Clean up. Make sure you smell okay. And, and if you have a wife, love that person and enjoy that person. Enjoy life with the woman who you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun, because this is your reward in life. That's what God gives you. Something to eat, something to wear, take care of yourself, enjoy your work, enjoy your tasks, and don't try to make yourself crazy trying to figure out all the stuff that you can't comprehend. Something as simple as love your wife is a joy in life given to you from God is my point. Given to you from God because that's your reward. And in your toil in which you have labored under the sun, that's your reward. Okay, so now let's go back to chapter 9, verse 1, since we understand the overall context, which is there's a bunch of stuff you can't understand. There's a bunch of stuff that Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, he set himself to understanding and having the wisdom to comprehend all these things, and he came to the conclusion, you can't do it. You can't get there. The best you can do is enjoy what God has given you, and that's really kind of the purpose of your life. For I have taken all this into my heart, and I explain it this way, that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred, because anything awaits him. So what he's saying is, a wise person understands that everything in his life, across the board, whatever it is, he understands that it's all in God's hand. I have used the phrase many, many times that there is nothing that enters your life until it passes through nail-scarred hands. First, it has to be approved by God, language that Solomon himself has already used. First, it has to be approved by God in order for it to even get into your life. And so if there are things coming into your life that are God approved, enjoy them. Be grateful for them. Be happy. Be merry. Have a good countenance about them. Don't be grumpy. Don't be angry. Don't be arguing about what you don't have. Don't be longing and lusting for all the stuff your eyes see that you don't possess. Instead, be grateful for the things that you do have because a wise man and a righteous man knows that all their deeds, everything in their life comes from God. Yes. And that's where you get that sense of satisfaction. That's where you get the sense of contentment from is the knowledge that this is all from God. But beyond that, it's also where you get your sense of grateful enjoyment from. I have known, maybe you have known, maybe Sandy has known. I have known dour Christians. I have known people who say they believe in God, and as a consequence, they think they have to walk around all the time just being really hard to deal with and grumpy. And kind of sour and kind of hard to be around. And I think, where's your joy? There's supposed to be some joy in your life, remember? There's supposed to be some happy in your life, remember? That's what Solomon keeps stressing. How many times now have you seen him say it? He says, enjoy what you've got. Be thankful for what you've got. Have a good countenance about what God has done in your life. And a wise man knows that God is the one who brought these things to you. And he's already approved these things. Therefore, it's okay for you to go ahead and be happy. It's okay for you to enjoy what you've got. I know Christians who feel guilty when they enjoy things. 
You know what I'm talking about. The people who feel like if God has brought something into their life, if they enjoy it, that they're somehow doing wrong. No, you're not. Solomon says, no, enjoy what God puts in your life. Because those are the deeds that are from the hand of God. And man does not know whether it's going to be love or hatred. In other words, you don't know what happens tomorrow. You don't know what happens later today. You don't know if it's going to be good or bad. He's going to list several examples of good and bad. He starts with love and hate. You don't know what's coming. And because you don't know what's coming, enjoy what is right now. If you're healthy right now, if you're fed right now, if you're clothed right now, if you have friends right now, if you have someone to love right now, be happy for it because you don't know what happens tomorrow. Anything could be coming down the pike. It's already heading towards you. It's already in motion. It's already going to occur. It's just not going to occur until tomorrow. You don't know it. God knows it. You don't know it yet. So you can go through your whole life worrying about what's about to happen or you can enjoy what's in front of you right now. Solomon's advice is be happy for right now. Be happy for what you're doing right now. Are you eating? Be happy. Are you drinking? Be happy. You loving somebody? Be happy. God taking care of you? Be happy. Because you don't know what it's going to be tomorrow. Could be love, could be hate. You don't know. Anything. He makes it clear. Man does not know whether it will be love or hate. Anything awaits him. Anything could be coming down the pike. It is the same For everyone, says verse 2, there is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked. And I'll tell you in advance, that fate is everybody dies. Life ends. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked. There's one fate for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean. For a man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As a good man is, so is the sinner. As the one who swears is, the one who swears by God, so is the one who is afraid to swear. And this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil And insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives, and afterwards they go to the dead. Have you ever read a better description of human beings? There it is right there. Just like we've read so many different places, the same thing that that wickedness beats in the heart of men, Solomon comes to the exact same conclusion, that the hearts of the son of men are full of evil. You can read it all the way back in Genesis. That's why God flooded the earth. Because men were, their hearts were wickedness continually. So Solomon concludes, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity runs in their hearts. What is the very root of insanity? Not fearing God. There's a God who made everything. That's evidenced by the fact that everything exists. No matter how hard insane scientists have tried to say that One day, nothing banged and it became everything. I don't understand that theory at all. And that everything just happened with no designer at all, despite the fact that we see design everywhere. So that's insane at some point. The denial of God, the denial of all that is righteous, all that is holy, at some point becomes repetitive insanity. And why is it insane? Because there's nothing but wickedness in them. And because they're wicked, they go insane. Just recently, just recently, somebody shared one of my videos that I did just this week that I put on YouTube, uh, the one that's called, uh, But What If I'm Wrong? So a friend of mine shared it on his wall, and uh, a friend of his, who is a raging atheist, decided to take me to task. He ended up saying the preacher in this video needs to be flogged. Um, And yet if you go read his page, he's a full-fledged 1960s hippie who believes in peace, love, joy, flower, power, all that stuff. So peace, love, joy, kindness on the earth guy believes people who don't agree with him should be flogged. That seems a little insane to me. 
And so I agree with Solomon that the more people get away from the source of life, the more they get away from the root of sanity, which is the fear of God, the more they become not only wicked in their hearts, but the more their thoughts tend toward insane thoughts and insane ideas. Anyway, there is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the son of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. And afterwards, they die. For whoever is joined with all the living, that would be all of us. If you're still alive, if, you're, if your heart's still ticking, if you're still here right now, if you're consciously alive right now, there's still hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. If you line up a dog and a lion, the lion's going to eat the dog. You're going to say, okay, the lion is superior to the dog. But once the lion's dead, it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. For the living know that they're going to die. But the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward which, or a memory on the earth. They have no lasting memory here on the planet where people remember what they did. They have no reward here on the planet for their memory is forgotten. The memory of them just eventually disappears. Indeed, everything they did, their love, their hate, their zeal, all perish. And they will no longer have a share in everything that is done under the sun. Once you die, you die. And no longer are you participant in the stuff that's going on here on the planet. Now, Solomon is not saying, look, there's no afterlife. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying, look, there's no judgment. He's comparing living and dead on the planet. And he's saying living on the planet people know stuff and can still be influenced by the stuff that happens under the sun. People who are dead are in the grave. No longer do they know anything that's going on under the sun and no longer are they participant in it. All of their love and their hate and their zeal, all of that perishes and they have no share in everything that's done under the sun. Okay, so if that's the case, if these crazy people are just like the righteous people in that everybody dies, but it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion, then what's his conclusion? His conclusion is, you're here now, enjoy it. That's the context in which he says, go then, eat your bread in happiness, drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life, and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. And whatever your hand finds to do, verily do it with all your might. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it. Commit yourself to it. Do it with the vitality of knowing this is what God has brought into my life. Whatever your hand finds to do, verily do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where we're all going. The word Sheol there is in the grave. Once you die, there's no more activity, planning, knowledge, wisdom. That, that's all happened. So while you're alive, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Enjoy it. Commit yourself to it. Whether that's eating, whether that's drinking, whether that's loving, whether that's toil, whether that's work, whether the, whatever it is your hand finds to do, do it with all your ability. Because eventually you die, and then there's none of that. Here, I'll put it this way. One of my drumming heroes, you didn't know I was going to go here tonight, did you? <laughs> One of my drumming heroes is a fellow named Pete Erskine. Now, Pete plays with a band called Weather Report these days, a, a jazz group. Years ago, when he was like 19, 
he used to play for Stan Kenton, big band. And in those days, I was playing with a jazz ensemble that used to open for many of these touring big bands. And we opened for Stan Kenton. And I was at the time like 17, and I was playing with a local jazz big man group. Local. This guy was like 19, and he's playing on national stages with the Stan Kenton outfit. And I'm thinking, how do you get from me to, to where you are? How, how does this work? So I met him. And I said to him, Pete, you play with a sort of ferocity. You, you play furiously. You, you, you really, every time you play, you dig in. I said, what inspires that? Why do you do that? And he said, because every time I play, I think I might never get to play again. Well, that's carried me through a lot of things in life, including preaching to this day. Part of the reason that I preach with a certain amount of passion and commitment, part of the reason I do that is I don't know if I'm ever going to get to talk to you again. I don't know if I'm going to be here this Sunday. I don't know if you're going to be here this Sunday. Steve's not going to be here this Sunday. I don't know if I'm ever going to get to talk to Steve again. I have no idea what's coming right around the corner. But one more time, I get to open God's word and I get to tell people about the truth of God. So I'm going to do that with everything I got in me. I'm going to do that with all the emotion and all the passion and all the humor and all the intellect and all the whatever I've got to work with. That's what I'm going to use because I don't know if I'm ever going to get to do this ever again. I don't know what's waiting around the corner. Solomon says, whatever your hand finds to do, verily, do it with all your might. This is what my hand is found to do. I try to do it with all my might. Verse 11, I again saw under the sun... That the race is not to the swift. The race is not always. The winner is not always of the race. It's not always the fastest guy. We've all seen that happen. Anybody here see the Kentucky Derby? Yep. There was a horse that won the Kentucky Derby by a length. Yep. Right? Yep. Yeah, he won the winner. No, the, the guy who came in second place won because of a technicality during the race. The race doesn't always go to the swift. It's funny that we just happen to have that example. That's the way to bet? Are you advocating betting here in church on a Wednesday night? You know, the same thing happens to the righteous and the wicked. (laughs) Oh, now see what you've begun? Now see, if we don't quickly stamp this out, it's going to... Never mind. I know. I again saw under the sun, here in the world, here in life, the race is not always to the swift, the battle is not always to the warriors, and neither is bread always to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, to the smart people. Sometimes it's stupid people who get rich. I know a lot of stupid rich people, and you think, how did you get rich? Nor favor to men of ability. The good stuff, the grace, doesn't always come to the people who would know what to do with it. For time and chance overtake them all. You don't know what's going to happen in this life. Sometimes things happen that you just didn't see coming. Happenstance. Yes, it's all happening under the hand of a sovereign God. But you don't know it. You don't know what's coming. Moreover, A man does not know his time. You don't know how long you're going to live. You don't know when you're going to die. You don't know how long you're going to live. I just told the story recently here, I think on Sunday or maybe last Wednesday, of the 15-year-old girl who used to come to our Bible study. Cross the street, boom, dead. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody. God knew. She didn't know. We didn't know. Time and chance took over. Men don't know their time. They're like fish that are caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time or at a time when they're not expecting it, when it just suddenly falls on them. Just when you're not planning it, suddenly you're dead. We were watching a program the other night. I'm going to let you go. I know it's getting later. We were watching a program the other night where there was a person who had 
just bought a historic building and they had begun making a hotel out of it. And then the work stopped because the husband of the couple passed away. And uh, they were interviewing the wife. And I can't think of the exact quote, but it was poignant when she said, um, yeah, he moved in here with all these big plans. He just didn't plan on dying. (laughs) And that happened. And no one knew. I mean, here he was living his life, making plans, looking forward. This was his retirement plan for him and his wife. He moved into the building, and he's gone. So it suddenly falls on them. Also, I find this interesting from Solomon. Also, this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. It's one of the few times that Solomon says something. You know what? This really affected me. This one was impressive. This one I really thought about. Here's the story that, that affected him. As king, he would have heard about this. There was a small city with a few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, constructed a large siege work against it. And there was found in that city a poor, wise man. And he delivered the city by his wisdom. And yet, no one remembers that poor man. So this is something Solomon must have heard about, that there was a little city, and a mighty king came and besieged the city, and some poor, wise man had a clever idea. And because of his clever idea, he ended up delivering the city from the hand of the mighty king. Name that guy. And Solomon says, nobody knows. We can't remember who that guy We know the story, but nobody knows. Nobody remembers the guy who did it. So I say... Wisdom is better than strength. But the wisdom of the poor man gets despised, and his words are not heeded. The words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Isn't that a beautiful sentence? The words of the wise heard quietly. Just listen. You don't need to talk. You don't need to say, me too, I know something. Look at me. Sometimes it's best to just be quiet and listen to wisdom. That's a whole lot better than a bunch of fools getting together and yelling at each other. (coughs) Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, and one sinner destroys a whole lot of good. All right, that's where we will pick up next week. That was Solomon's perspective from a king's perspective. And if you walk away with nothing else tonight, just remember, you don't know what's happening tomorrow. You don't know if you're going to make it home tonight. You don't know if you're going to wake up tomorrow. You, you don't know what's coming. So whatever you got right now, enjoy it. Be happy for it. Look, this last Sunday we heard about Luann's diagnosis. A year ago, I heard Luann's pretty much a goner. Sorry to put it that way. But, you know, Luann's lung cancer is kind of over for her. She's been given months. That's it. Sunday, Steve stood up here and said the doctor can't find anything on the, the latest scans. Who saw that coming? God knew. God saw that coming. Steve didn't see that coming. Anybody in this room see that coming? Well, we were all worrying about Luann. Was anybody thinking, nah, she'll be fine. Worry about Betty. You know, worry about something else. No. So now, as a result, Steve gets more time to love his wife. And Solomon says, enjoy that. Love that. You get to eat something. You get to drink something. Another day where good things are coming to you. It's okay to enjoy it. Because, after all, it's a sovereign God who brought it to you. Sometimes I think we think of the big sovereign God as the severe judge. And we all kind of cower under the fear of that almighty but he's also your loving father and Jesus says he knows what things you have need of and it's the father's good pleasure to give you those things and if it's his good pleasure if he's happy about it if it's his pleasure to give you these things then don't be grumpy about them when you get them be happy about the fact that your father has given these good things to you and enjoy your life because, after all, even better stuff is coming. 
get used to it. That's what I, I guess I'm saying. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, I'm not just talking to myself up here. Because I'm a fairly happy guy. I've learned to be content. And all of that is such a change from who I used to be. And all of it came from the recognition that God cares about me enough that he would not only give me the stuff of this life, but he would sacrifice his son for me. The phrase that I use so often is, God is too holy not to do that, which brings him the greatest glory, but he's also loving enough not to do that, which brings us the greatest good. He is interested in our good, and sometimes we don't say that often enough. All right? All right. So enjoy your evening then. Questions? Anybody want to uh, sign up with our bookie over here? Anybody want to? <laughs> All right, say good night to the internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.